a great variety of absorbing poetry is obscured by its submission for mainstream publishing, newspaper reviews and the critical narrowness of National Poetry Awards. There is at least a lack of balance dating back to the late 1970s and the changes at the Poetry Society as described by Peter Barry in Poetry Wars, British Poetry of the 1970s and the Battle of Earl's Court. National Poetry Awards are essentially judged by a small coterie of friends who give each other awards, as delineated by Private Eye magazine in July 2002, Ms Tom Chivers reminded us earlier this year in Tears in the Fence 45. They are essentially unrepresentative of what is and has been happening in English poetry, incredibly safe and unchallenging. There is a tame parochialism and narrowness that has its roots in notions of nation and identity forged between the world wars and reinforced by the movement in the 50s and its apologists in the 80s. English decency, as Blake Morrison and Andrew Motion wrote in their introduction to the Penguin Book of Contemporary British Poetry. There is an antagonism towards the discovery of meaning and form in language, and to reading widely and deeply that flares up in spats about what constitutes poetry and who should control the field. See, for example, Don Paterson's 2004 T.S. Eliot lecture and Neil Astley's 2005 Stanza lecture and their responses. Conversely, there is a predominantly modernist line of thought that seeks to avoid any market taint, friends refusing to review friends' work for fear of selling out. The new generation poets of the 90s and its marketing machinery similarly adopted a cosy world of vernacular spontaneity and simplistic forms of connection between poetry and life. This strategy involved an acceleration of the critical deterioration heralded by Morrison and Motion. This was not always the case, and there are signs that younger readers, thanks to new technology and a greater awareness of disparate writing, are having no truck with this narrowness. I would like to discuss an example of this absorbing poetry that encourages openness and takes the reader off the beaten track and to indicate why there may be signs of change. I first encountered Alan Fisher's place in literary magazines at Compendium Bookshop in Camden Town, London in the mid-1970s. This was an exciting time to visit Compendium and buy such magazines as Gross Tester Review, Curtains, The Park, Poetry Information, Aggie Westins, Joe DiMaggio, Reality Studios, Six Pack, Spectacular Diseases and Eric Mottram's Poetry Review. Scattered amongst such magazines were extracts from Place by the poet and painter Alan Fisher. It seemed like Samizdat literature. It was inspirational in the sense that it allowed itself the privilege of drawing upon a wide range of sources that impinged upon South London where Fisher was born and raised. Place Book One, for which Fisher jointly won the Alice Hunt Bartlett Poetry Award, appeared in 1974 and was followed by other parts of the project, culminating in Unpolished Mirrors, 1986, 
and finally appearing as one book, Place, in 2005. In common with J.H. Prynne, Andrew Crozier and Ian Sinclair, Fisher drew upon Olson's The Maximus Poems, Maximus Poems 4, 5, 6, and his projective first essay from 1950, to articulate a rich seam of sources and information from archaeology, history and geography. I don't think you can discuss Olson's impact in England without mentioning Ed Dorn's enthusiasm and encouragement to English poets, while he's a Fulbright Fellow at Essex University, to follow this path. Raised and educated during the Depression, Dorn's poetry was concerned with limits and thresholds of place and identity. Dawn had been taught by Olsen at Black Mountain College, lived at Gloucester, the location of the Maximus poems, and clearly was an inspirational figure. Like the Maximus poems, Place is a sprawling work, although not an epic work, in the sense of a journey out and in. It is more about process and contemplation than journey. It has a relentless and flat movement forward. The book's organisation is Alsonian with five main books. Place Book One, Eros Father Pattern, Stain, Becoming and Unpolished Mirrors. Placebook 1 is subtitled in Roman numerals and contains within it an internal sequence lakes and a section subtitled Making an Essay Out of Place. Stain, the Scottish word for stone, is subtitled Placebook 3 and so on. There is a complex numbering system at work for each poem or section of the project. There is also a series entitled Grampians that appears in Placebook 1 and Stain as well as letters to friends, a response to the publication of Ian Sinclair's Lud Heat, and direct quotations from fellow poets Anthony Barnett and Pierre Joris. There are poems with lines and stanzas at different angles, and poems that use horizontal, vertical and diagonal lines to connect bits of text and to allude to other connections. However defamiliarising this might be, it is clearly a development out of Olsen, with its sheared emphasis on the complexity and plurality of cognition rather than an imitation. There is no immediately assimilated narrative. Place requires the reader to become immersed in the conflicting range of references and readings that constitute its object. The preface states, This set takes the form of an essay in fragments that brought together bring about their own symmetry, their own chaos. And later, I await the day when this book will lose and find itself in a general movement of ideas. Place begins by peeling away layers of history and settlement along the Lambeth Causeway to the City of London. 
through mostly unidentified historical, literary, philosophical and documentary sources, the Lambeth people are shown standing on the sites of battlefields, bridging the city banks with cattle fields. Fisher's fragments highlight indices of 19th century poverty, submerged pathways and streams, lines of migration and waste, ley lines and boundaries. He seldom attempts to prioritise one fragment over another, but rather teases out possible underlying structures and association through juxtaposition. In contrast to the stable identity and formal restraint of movement and new generation poets, Open Field produces polyphonic and fragmented perceptions. On one level there is a kind of levelling of sources and ideas reminiscent of Eric Mottram's essays, that can engender a less-than-engaged response. Sometimes the conflicting energies are dissipated or need to be held in suspension as other perceptions and lines of inquiry enter the poem. Yet on another, one could argue that Fisher's play on the binaries of the visible and actual, of giving and taking, of sources and deposits, of underlying and artificial divides, is an example of an attempted Tao with its elusiveness intact. Fisher's achievement in this initially bewildering and subsequently compelling poem is to seek out processes and possibilities and to encourage his readers to embrace this as a work in progress that involves their active participation. In many ways, it was the experience of reading and not understanding place that forced me to make linkages between the concept of place and other discourses that impinge upon any place. In my experience, that involved linking with Foucault's discourse analysis and thinking about process, and on a practical level, realising that a knowledge of place required a full understanding of natural and human sciences, as well as social, economic, legal and historical processes. Place Book One is entitled Place Rather Than Lambeth or South London, and that surely suggests Fisher is attempting to, be, to move beyond Williams, Paterson and Olson's Maximus. The loci of a sphere, I have seen it, I, not Maximus, but a citizen of Lambeth, cyclic on linear planes. Here the narrative self, with small and large I to indicate selves, is located in a specific place in the manner of Paterson, and the not Maximus indicating that this is not an imitation. This is a long poem with a Shelleyan scope for poetry built upon American models with an English philosophical hinterland. The fifth book, Unpolished Mirrors, employs a Blakeian flourish with the gardeners, Watlings and Wren's monologues within an inquiry into memory, perception and consciousness that includes references that extend beyond London's literary and scientific history. John Dee and the Theatre of Memory, to the specialist language of scientific research. Fisher has clearly absorbed Pound, Oppen, Olsen, Rikiza, 
Reznikov, Sikovsky and so on. The arrangements of fragments can be seen as both strength and weakness. The strength comes from the emphasis on process, which Fischer later develops in Brixton Fractals, and the weakness comes from the failure to elaborate the interconnectedness of all through linkages. I suspect that an underlying resource that Fisher draws upon is A.N. Whitehead's Process and Reality 1929, a work that was introduced to me by John Cooper Powers's brother-in-law, Gerard Casey, in the early 80s. Although not listed in the bibliographical resources, the work has resonance with the Taoist methodology. Whitehead's central metaphysical idea identifies reality with process. He saw the universe as being in constant flow and change and rejected the dualisms of mind and body, of knowing subject and transcendent object, of man and nature, believing in the interconnection of all things. Another feature is that Fisher includes within the poem some of the background thinking to his work in progress as a kind of estrangement in the Brechtian sense. It can be disconcerting for readers to encounter passages of philosophy with brackets closed and open. However, this is Blakean in the knowledge that without contraries there is no progression, and similarly works to keep place outside of the poetic mainstream and inside a broader avant-garde of poetry as process. Place's Taoist approach is combined with aspects of late 60s esoteric research and thinking. These are specifically English sources, such as the Ode Track, its mounds, beacons, moats, sites and markstones, 1925 by Alfred Watkins, and the view over Atlantis, 1969 by John Mitchell, both of which present leyline theory, and the patterns of past, 1969, research into underground water systems and ancient sites by Guy Underwood, a pioneer of earth energy dowsing. Fisher uses this speculative material on the underlying lines and patterns detected by dowsing to great effect as the Lambeth Walker seeking out hidden sources of energy. His contemporary Ian Sinclair was similarly divining the past in Hackney, East London and Ludd Heat, which along with Andrew Crozier's The Veil vale Poem, 1974, is similarly fragmentary and concerned with showing that the world reveals itself not as a given, but through perception and process. involves much more than I've indicated here. It is the thinking behind a work such as Place that is as important as the range and uses made of the content. The poetry may not be as quotable as T.S. Eliot or be as linguistically hinged as Andrew Crozier or as formally elegant as Peter Riley, but it is very effective and works on the reader with repeated readings. Multifaceted long poems such as Place are rare and challenging. They're not elitist per se as time and scholarship wear them down to manageable tendencies. 
They are adult and awake, moving forward. There are many ways in and out of their ingenuity. Parts of Place But One echo the connections between the psychogeography of Guy Debord and Raoul Van Egem in sexuality. There is a sense of fully exploring the relations between the narrator's body and the body of Lambeth. Place also contributed to the popularisation of psychogeography in Britain through its emphasis on walking London and its connection with the large body of work produced by Ian Sinclair. <clears throat> One could also examine the way individual poems mark the extent through fragmentation to which the narrative self interjects within certain discourses. Place implicitly encourages moral and political thinking of the need to break out of confined dogmas, peer groups and idioms. It shines as a beacon to show possible ways forward in the endless movement from the natural landscape to the cultural and back again. It makes you consider citizenship, moral responsibility and what it is to live in a place. It makes you think about the limits and thresholds of place, speech, identity and audience. Time has moved on since place first appeared and we're now a more fragmented and multinational nation. Although you would not know this from our National Poetry Prize winners. The post Wordsworthy and critique of the pastoral is not merely localised anymore, it is contextualised globally, as poetry itself is becoming increasingly contextualised globally. The Australian globetrotting poet John Kinsella has a useful introduction to this in Disclose Poetics Beyond Landscape and Lyricism, 2007. Based in Gambia, Ohio, Kinsella is a remarkable poet of birds and the beach, concerned with issues of nation, place and self that reverberate internationally. Younger poets and critics are more aware of the 20th century English modernist tradition these days thanks to new technology developments. Literary websites such as John Tranter's Jacket magazine have led the field in essays, articles and new poems within an international modernist aesthetic. Individual poets such as Ron Silliman have used blogs to discuss a wide range of modernist and other poetries. There are also sites that actively encourage the sharing of wide reading, such as Goodreads and StumbleUpon, and networking sites such as MySpace and Facebook, used by younger people where older poets have made contacts and found a new audience. Younger poets and critics have started their own blogs, such as Edmund Hardy's Intercapillary Space, and display their knowledge and interest. The internet fosters wide reading through its search engines, and although the information is not always accurate or reliable, there is a great opportunity to discover those marginalised poets of substance that have been almost written out of existence. Combine this with the success of non-mainstream English publishers such as Shearsman and Salt, it is broadly possible to say that there may be an underlying change in emphasis underway in English poetry that will eventually see an end to the current ridiculous situation.